Welcome to Better Europe, the pan-European podcast run by DM25 members. So today no, we have a special episode. As every one of you probably knows, um, the European election is ahead. And we have two guests today, um, one from Austria, Daniela Platsch, and one from Poland, Johanna Bonowitzka. And both are actually candidates of the German um, electoral wing of DiEM25, Demokratie in Europa. Welcome. Hello, good afternoon. And yes, we're part of the same team. <laughs> hey, this is Johanna. Thanks for having us. By the way, um, this episode should be like a crossover. So um, if you have questions to each other, you know, like questions about Poland or about Austria, just just start with it. You are like co-hosts. Consider yourselves as co-hosts for this episode. Thank you. <laughs> I have actually more than enough questions for Poland. Um, <laughs> this might be a whole new episode <laughs> if I get to ask all of them. Perfect. Okay, um, we might have a lot of uh, new listeners or people who uh, are new, completely new to DM25, so I guess it would be best to to describe shortly what it's all about, I guess. Yeah, well, we'll um, we'd like you to give um, a short introduction to DM25 and what DM25 is all about, and then we'll progress and talk about the European Spring. Yeah, so, so it's it's pretty hard from time to time to describe uh, DM25 or or the structure of DM25 to new people, especially in a short way, because the whole pan-European thing can be quite complicated, can't it? <laughs> I can uh, I can give it a try, because on the campaign trail, that's kind of the question that we get asked a lot. You know, European Spring, DM25, Demokratie in Europa, how is it all related? So what I usually say is that European Spring, which is this broader pan-European thing, uh, was born out of DM25, which is a progressive grassroots movement, and then parties, different progressive parties um, that joined forces together and worked on a common program. So now we have a combination of parties like Razem from Poland, uh, Wandel from Austria and Demokratie in Europa in Germany and a couple others and our movement, which has its own history and its own structure, which is the DiEM25. But I, maybe you would be better to explain DiEM25 to our listeners. <laughs> and I think DiEM25 is not even such a complicated product. Um, it's It's a simple necessity that we have to come together across borders within Europe if we want to move into a progressive political direction. And in the beginning, when DiEM25 was founded, Yanis Varoufakis, Rechko Horvat, and all the people, the founding members, said whoever wants to join behind a joint program can also join the movement or now the electoral room. So whoever wanted to join, this can be individual people or organizations, parties, but also some smaller NGOs, they joined forces to fight together um, within Europe, within civil society, and now also within the political sphere. I was there when, um, when Yanis announced the M25, with all these other people in Volksbühne in Berlin. Were you there? 
Yes, I was there too. Back then, I was not on the stage. I was in the audience with uh, colleagues from Razem from Poland that traveled from Poland for this event and from uh, Razem Berlin folks. And we were really excited and really happy with the same ideas that we've been promoting for about um, a year or so then are resonating on the on the European level. But I think that back then I, I, I couldn't have imagined that I would be a candidate of the 25 in Germany. Um, I think I was still a bit skeptical when, you know, there was this big promise of a transnational movement around Europe. People should join organizations, parties. And there was a voice in my head uh, that was saying, well, is this actually going to work out, you know? So what, three years, two, three, three years later, uh, it's just incredible to see that it did work out. So many people answered that call and there are now 25 people all over Europe and it's just incredible how much European politics have changed since then. I was there as well. Um, I took a day off of my work to go to Berlin. We were also three people from Mandel, from Austria. And I was fascinated with the whole event. It was a full day. But then I kept on thinking, so, okay, it's a nice idea. But how is this ever going to work? So I think I had exactly the same doubt as you had in the beginning. So I'm also, now I'm still fascinated of how people across Europe can work together without um, a lot of structural hierarchies and national interests. It's a very fascinating experiment. So what did you both used to do before you became involved and active in politics? I'm still working in my normal day job. I'm a consultant for organizational change in Austria for big corporations. And I still work during the election campaign. So it's I don't have a life before or after politics. When I started being active in a political party in the Wandel in 2012, I somehow realized that um, people need to organize on a political level if if we want any change and if we want to sustain the idea of democracy in Europe, we need to do something. Um, but it's always been a free time activity for me. Well, I'm and you, Joanna. I'm 30 years old, and uh, before moving to Germany, I worked jobs in many different sectors in Poland and U.S. and France. And I worked in the NGO sector as a journalist in India and even for the Polish government, the previous one. Um, but since I moved to Germany five years ago, I've been working in academia at this university on the Polish-German border called European University Viadrina. And I was the director of the Center for Internet Human Rights. Um, it's a center that studies the impact of technology on different spheres of life, so it brings interdisciplinary teams of researchers together. And, and now I'm, I'm focusing obviously on the campaign, but also on research projects that are specifically about the impact of technology on how we work. And um, we're talking to uh, people who work in the platform economy, like Deliver Fedora, um, call centers uh, and other professions. But the way I actually came to politics was because I was an activist uh, before, um, mainly in relation to migrant rights. 
because when I studied in the US and France, um, I realized that there are a lot of people who are undocumented migrants and, um, and then joined groups that were fighting for undocumented migrants. So now that I'm a Polish migrant myself living in Germany, um, it's organizing the Polish community in Berlin is very important for me because I could always see, you know, these migrant communities being invisible in many different ways, but politically was, you know, it's not easy to remain politically active when it's, when you're a migrant, when you're new. So this is kind of how these different, you know, elements of my life came together now. There seems to be a real, like, a <laughs> Rasen block in, in Berlin right now, right? We have a lot of members and a lot of candidates, and three candidates. And that's a reflection of how big the migration outside of Poland was. You know, a lot of young people left in the last five, ten, fifteen years because of the crazy policies that we had in Poland that completely deregulated the job market and um, now a lot of people don't even have like a proper contract. They have this temporary contract. They can be basically fired every every month. So of course a lot of people are looking to move somewhere else to have a little bit more stability. So that means that um, actually when our party, Razem, was created, even people from all over the world wanted to join. And by now, I think 8 or 9% of our party membership lives outside of Poland. And Razem in Berlin has always been extremely active. And, and by now we have, like I think, like 50 members and 20 um, like sympathizers. But we have many more people that we are like connected with. I think we've become like quite an important group on the map, on the political map of Berlin, you know, of the, representing the progressive face of Poland. Can I add something to the question of life before and in politics? Go ahead. Um, I think you, like, it, it is an interesting question. Like, what do people do before they become politically active? But at the same time, I think we all seem to have this conception of there are professional politicians who do politics mm -hmm. but nothing else. And then there's the ordinary folks um, who do have a day job. Yeah. And then once you become politically active, these two worlds separate. And I think this is precisely the problem with our democracy at the moment is that people don't see that like we're all political beings and whatever we do is political. Um, of course, people usually don't have time, whether you're a Polish migrant in Berlin or a working woman in Austria. It doesn't matter. Like People have extended working hours today. They have families. They have other business to do. Um, and so we just started to con consume politics. And then there's this few people who put a lot of effort and time in it. And then we think like, oh, they must be professional. But I think we really need to change that conception and start thinking about like how can we get these two streams of life together? Like whatever we do in our daily work, whatever we do in a political forum, it's always the same person. You no, know? we only have one um, body that we live in, <laughs> so it's all yeah. connected when we do. I think Danny touched on a very important point. Is also that 
especially if you are uh you know trying an activist or progressive politician um chances are that you have a day job and that it takes a lot of time and actually in my experience um of last couple of years in politics lack of time is the biggest barrier for people to get engaged more you know especially uh i don't know for example in poland people work much more than the 40 hours that they're allowed in law. So uh, they work uh, really long hours and they're really burned out and they're very tired. And then they try to juggle politics with family. And then if they're a woman, then you also, you know, have a lot of other care obligations. So there are a lot of these invisible barriers for people to enter politics that could be also changed with politics. So, for example, when we have the 35-hour work week that we're proposing now, um, that would also be good for democracy because people would have more time for their families, but they would also have more time for for politics. You could just join all these things together, but right now it's really hard. Yeah, Yeah, it's like, like a strategy of modern capitalism. Keeps the people that busy that they actually can't care about politics and society. Yeah, because for many people, politics are considered as um, something to do um, um, if you have the time to do it, sort of thing. So um, yeah, but but you'll you'll find that um, you know, for example, people in in local municipalities and councils, etc., they're not really well remunerated anyway. So it's not a matter of giving up your day job to, to become a politician. As you're saying, you know, with, with modern life being the way it is and, and the number of hours people are involved in, in, in working and commuting, it's very hard to make time for additional things, um, even the important things. It's not only the working time, it's this whole idea of having super professional politics in the way people act and talk. So you like when you look at national politicians or European politicians, there's hardly anyone that seems to be like a authentic person that just speaks from the heart. People seem to be trained so much and you have to be this media personality, all these kind of things. And I have the feeling, especially with women, um, people don't want to speak up because they're scared of how they should be or have to be so that people even recognize them as a political person. And I think this is what we also try to change at DiEM25, because we have a lot of like very special and well-known people within our movement. But, and that's very unique at DiEM25, they all in some way take a back seat and give ordinary people also the room to develop themselves and emancipate themselves politically. So I really appreciate that about the whole idea of Team 25, because I know this is very rare and it doesn't happen in any other political party. I think that this is uh, something that we should really cherish about our movement, this authenticity and the fact that, uh, you know, even in this campaign, you can see that it's uh, it's on one hand very professional. Uh, on the other hand, it is decentralized in a way that there is nobody telling us how we should uh, behave or what we should be 
uh, talking about or how we should be talking. And I was recently at this debate with some students and I think they were like 10 years younger than me and they were from different parties, but they were already, they already had that, um, that, that way of behaving of what, how a politician should talk. They were extremely eloquent and very well prepared. And they were talking in these, uh, you know, perfect sentences, but it was really difficult to see what kind of person they are. And I think nowadays, uh, it's very important that we, that we know not only the ideas in the program, but also what kind of people we are electing, you know, and is, is the way that they live and behave uh, in, in line with the values that they promote. I mean, there's a very stereotypical picture of uh, uh, a politician in these days. I mean, most of them studied uh, at law. There's something like an like a archetype of politician right now, and it's actually true. This archetype is something that we really need to change because there are so many people that don't fit into this archetype. And this is why politics yeah. is not diverse enough. It doesn't, um, it doesn't include people, not only women, but people from minorities, people, uh, you know, people that look uh, different for any reason. And um, this is something that, that we have to be very serious about is not only saying, oh, yeah, we care about women, we care about uh, migrants or uh, people from ethnic minorities. It's, it should be themselves. It should be people from these communities that, that become politicians yeah. and they, um, they just represent the communities they, they come from. So I think this archetype is no accident. It's by design. It is a very powerful way to discourage a lot of people that that would be just as great as a you know a city council or parliament member or European Parliament member, um, you know somebody who is like a, a nurse or a pharmacist or a teacher could be a great member of European Parliament, but for some reason we think it's uh, impossible. We have to change yeah. that. Yeah, a typical picture of a politician. Some old white man in a suit. <laughs> I mean, Yanis just caused an uproar because of he went to work by with a motorcycle, and that was already enough for the media to tackle on. <laughs> That's true. But from the experience of Austria, I can tell you that being a young white man doesn't make it any better. <laughs> Our chancellor, who is very young, um, but I wouldn't say he's an archetype type of uh, of a good politician for the future. Yeah, Mr. Kurz. Well, I would say a lot of the old archetypes are going out of the window now anyway. What, what I would like to say about whether things are changing or not, I think they're changing way slower than we sometimes think. I mean, I was watching the Masters debate and there was only one woman and she was representing the left wing and all the other candidates were men in suits. Uh, and then I think the change is very, very slow. And sometimes we get very excited and optimistic about things like um, when Ocasio-Cortez won the, the New York primary and, uh, you know, just uh, women of color in, in American Congress. But these are just, I would still say, exceptions to, to a rule. And we should not get blindsided by the fact that 
there's a lot of powerful forces out there that are keeping a lot of women um, from running. And, and, and actually, like, the, the reason why these particular group of people was able to make it through was they, because they got a lot of support. So we should also think about what can we do to make sure that, you know, every election season there's more women or people from minorities running because it's really on us to make sure that they feel empowered. I mean, yeah, what we're trying to achieve is changing the whole narrative of European politics. So I guess we can use any person that's available for our ideas and like simply try to organize people in a constructive and empowering way so that people feel, feel empowered to speak up, to be brave and to stand up against this avalanche of hatred that is hatred and new liberal sanity that is covering our whole continent, I guess. Yeah, that absolutely is the big danger we are facing with the upcoming election, I guess. It's a big wave of right-wing politicians. Yeah, definitely. The right-wing parties will double their seats in the European Parliament at this election. I think that's a given. Um, and for me, the question is, so what do we do about this and how do we counteract their power in Parliament? And being from Austria, where I can see the signs of a rising right-wing and extremist right-wing, um, I wonder, Joanna, in Poland, you're 10 steps further down the line. Um I'm not, I wouldn't call Poland the illiberal democracy, and I wouldn't say that we're 10 steps down the line. I mean, in the upcoming elections, I think we currently have one or two members of European Parliament uh, from the extreme right, and uh, in the upcoming elections, they are probably struggling to cross the trust threshold of 5%, um, the extreme right wing. So, I mean, I don't think Poland will be doubling the number of, um, of, you know, the extreme right wing in the European Parliament. I think it will be countries like France, maybe Germany, maybe other countries like Spain. Um, I think that this is a very big concern. In Poland, we have a conservative right wing party, of course. Uh, but I think that this is sometimes maybe a little bit of a misunderstanding that this this party which which has done a lot of bad things in the polish to polish democracy um, is not comparable with with some of the extremists in in europe um it probably depends on how you define liberal democracy um and it's probably not a like sharp line of like when you enter mm -hmm. like leave one zone and enter the other would you um but for example mm -hmm. In Austria, like we see that politicians are interfering with the freedom of press. They're interfering um, not in a like formal way, but they're changing the conversation of what can be said, what can be asked, how people interact with politics. And I'm really concerned about that. But I like I think in Austria we all don't know yet, maybe um, whether this is just a phase or it's just an act, or whether this is something we should really be scared about, because this will lead to a proper limitation of the freedom of press a couple of years down the line. Mm -hmm. Well, I would also say, I mean, that the right-wing government in Poland has 
implemented many disastrous changes. Like they, they weakened the constitutional court. They politicized the courts in general and the whole justice system. And they made the public media state media, which means that, uh, they only just say what the government wants to have said. But, uh, but the way that Poland is portrayed by the Western media is often exaggerated. We are, you know, we're a society of very well educated and hardworking people, but also uh, people that are very attached to freedom. And this is the kind of political freedom that the generation before us has won with their fight. So it would be very difficult for any government to change that. So even though, you know, the, 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 the government has implemented a lot of these changes, we have not really lost any political freedoms or rights. And every time that the government wanted to cross like an important red line, um, Polish people pushed back. And this was concerning, for example, women's rights, um, the right to abortion that was supposed to be completely restricted. We had this black protest. Um, but also, uh, the president vetoed, the president that's from the ruling party, uh, vetoed the bill about our justice system, but also when they wanted to change the way that European elections are done, that also didn't work out. So I think that, that if there's like a lesson to be learned from the Polish experience is that, um, the, you know, there are democratic ways to push against these, these governments, and at least in Poland, uh, it has really worked out. I mean, we have a conservative government, but the attitudes of the Polish people are actually changing uh, in a completely different direction. I mean, we always had like the highest uh, level of support for the European Union uh, in Europe, but now we also have more majority of people would support abortion um, up to the 12th week, and more and more people are supporting refugees. So this is these are still very sensitive topics in Poland, but uh, you can see that the society is really changing in favor. I'm not, I'm, a, I'm maybe it's a matter of being a little bit of an optimist, uh, but I, I, I think, yeah, anyways, I think that it's, we should be a little bit careful when the entire country gets vilified in the media. I, it's, it's, yeah. I think it's important that I say that also as yeah. a member of the opposition. You know, I am the opposition to the current government, so I'm definitely not defending them. But I, I would like maybe a more nuanced uh, image of Poland out there. Yeah, true. I mean, the the picture which uh, we get drawn, yeah, in the way the media draws, uh, is actually pretty dark. I mean, when I think about Polish uh, politics. I also think about the big uh, rallies of of yeah, let's call them them neo Nazis in Warsaw. In Warsaw, I mean, mm. I think you know yes, what I mean. Yes, of course. I mean, there were... Yes, of course. But there, the the the, the neo Nazis have been comfortably have been feeling more and more comfortable in a lot of countries in Europe, you know, and uh, true, yeah. and, and I think that's a very very big concern. And every time that there is a, a march uh, like that, it is not only the civil society that should push back, but we should um, ask our institutions, um, the police and the courts, to use the existing laws to sanction that. You know, and sometimes if, they, if these parties cross the line, they should be 
be legalized. So I, I wouldn't take it lightly, but I, I do think that an image, that, that an image like that should not become, uh, you know, a story of the whole country because uh, there are many reasons that, um, that Polish people have voted for the right wing government and racism and nationalism are not the only ones. Yeah, the, the Polish government actually is also some kind of left wing when it gets to uh, childcare or something, right? Yes, they are. Uh, they are currently um, doing what previous governments failed to do, which is to redistribute some of the some of the wealth, and they did that by implementing a child benefit similar to German kindergarten. It's universal. It means that anybody who has two children or more gets um, about 150 euros per kid, 125. And, um, and that has been, you know, hugely successful because you could say, for example, that it almost eradicated child poverty in Poland. Um, they also implemented some of the changes that, that the left-wing uh, party, like ours, uh, would have liked to do, like implemented an hourly minimum wage um, or closed some of the loopholes on the job market. But it's really not enough. I mean, this is the biggest disappointment also when they get portrayed abroad as as somehow doing more socialist policies. It's, it's not enough. It's, it's not, uh, it's not really fighting the influence of big corporations and banks and developers on the housing market. And it's not, it's not really fighting, um, all the employers who are using every single loophole to not give people their working rights. Um, it's, there's really so much more that, that should be done. Um, so it's really not it's not it's not a full picture when you say that they did some of these things. Of course, of course, it's also not. It's important to to not uh, overlook that, but it's definitely not enough. And of course, we don't want this mix of socialist policies with uh, anti-democratic policies like attacking the rule of law and weakening the public media. That's that's a very bad mix. Yeah. How right-wing is the government in Austria? And to what extent they are doing things that are irreversible? Or it's just uh, it's just like these small changes here and there? Well, I think we have a multidimensional um, government, which is on one hand very neoliberal, pushing um, on the neoliberal front a lot, and also, for example, extending our working hours Now in Austria, you can have weeks where you have to work up, up to 60 hours a week. This is obviously uh, completely the wrong direction. But then they also implement some more populist um, nice nuggets for people. No, we have a family bonus where people get a tax reduction if you have children. Um, now they want to have a tax reform where people have to pay less taxes. So people love that, obviously. Um, but on a systemic level, they're very neoliberal. This is the conservative part of our government. With the right wing, um, they're obviously trying to influence our state on a very institutional level. So they send 
right wing people to all big positions that they can they can influence. We have, in Austria we have a system where if you're elected into government, then you can send people from your party to the national bank, obviously in all ministries, but also to the public television. And so they do all of this. And mainly what like the main problem I see is apart from like the scandals they produce every week is that they're changing the language of politics in Austria. So every week, someone from FPÖ, the right wing party, it can be either someone from government or someone on a local level would say unsayable things. Now we had this poem at Eastern where a local mayor in Braunau um, would compare refugees with rats. But he would just write this poem. Then obviously there's an outcry, but someone has already said it. And the next time you say something like this, it's not that bad anymore. And we have a tradition of the right-wing party, like influencing the, the story we tell ourselves about politics and making it worse. So, for example, one of our biggest um, refugee centers in Austria so we would that would be our Austrian hotspot, Dreiskirchen. It's now um not called immigration or asylum center more, but it's called um the center for deportation. So the first time a refugee arrives in Austria and is brought to this um place, he sees the sign of this is the center for deportations. And obviously, um this changes everything about the perception of what asylum is about. Yeah. So I think this is actually, hard. I mean, obviously the politics I don't agree with, but we never have any um, serious debates where like facts are presented or like there's an argument pro and con when you have a discussion. It's all about um, manipulation, about not having arguments at all saying really extreme things so that next time people won't be offended that much. I think that's actually the biggest problem. And so the general public, I think, like the majority likes our government. There's no doubt about that. Um, Sebastian Kurz as a chancellor has a very, um, very um, peaceful language when he talks. He's twisting and turning arguments, but he says it in a very nice way. Um, so people, I think, don't really see beyond his mask that he's wearing. And that's why he's very popular. But I think once this government um, will end, uh, after this turn or after the next, um, we can undo polit the political measures they set, but we can't undo the language damage we already have. This is what I'm most concerned about. So that it's created a um, cultural change in, in terms of uh, uh, the rhetoric that's uh, considered permissible to use um, in modern Austrian society. Exactly. And it's a, like you can see it with Donald Trump on an international level. Um, by saying outrageous things, he normalizes them. He normalizes yeah. them because no one can do anything about it. And yeah. even when Donald Trump is gone, I think... American politics will be changed forever because these things have already been said. And I think you shouldn't, you should never underestimate the change of thinking 
and the change of public awareness when it comes to language. Yeah, and and it's becoming noticeable on on the streets as well. And um, one example today, I, I heard people in a shop saying things I which they may have taught in the past, but now they feel um, free to say them out loud to other people. Yes, exactly. And it's also like it, when you, for example, um, we're talking about the Green New Deal a lot at uh, Demokratie in Europa, DiEM25. And mm -hmm. so I had an interview with an Austrian newspaper and they asked the Austrian Chamber of Commerce about the reaction to our Green New Deal and what they think about it. And there wasn't any argument in their answer. They just said like, oh, it's very naive. They're dreamers. What do they know? Um, obviously, it will never work. Yeah. Um, and for the general public, now this is an okay argument. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like without yeah. having any argument, you can just diss people and it's fine. And that's what kills democracy. I mean, this is pretty much much the same in, in Germany right now. I mean, young politicians of the Social Democratic Party claim that, well, we might have to think about, um, uh, what's the term again? You know what I mean, Danny? <laughs> the, the recommunalization? Exactly, communalization, oh, yeah. He just uh, started to think about it, you know, think about it loudly, like uh, speaking, thinking. And there was such a media uproar because he was speaking about recommunalization of, uh, of flats, for example. And, but, I mean, the situation, yeah? But I want to say something maybe, again, in line with my more optimist nature and vision of the human nature. I think that the voters are actually quite smart. And, and first of all, um, they are paying attention to what these governments are doing. And these governments, uh, in, at least in many countries, are, um, are losing support or are being closely watched when they fail and they don't deliver on their promises. Um, that's one thing that I think it's uh, – that these governments are often very incompetent and they triple over their own feet when they're trying to implement uh, uh, a change. And the second thing is that they actually were saying very controversial things at the beginning and that got them a lot of attention and they were very good at, at promoting certain ideas. And I think that ultimately it is about democracy. It is about a battle of ideas and it is on us to provide ideas that are better, more convincing, and maybe controversial, like recommunalization or bold ideas like uh, the Green New Deal, um, European minimum wage, things like that, that at first will be laughed at. Uh, but ultimately, I think the voters with time will see that this is the, the way to go and that this is uh, an alternative. So I think that as we should be all concerned about the rise of the right wing, they rose to power because they had wrong but very powerful ideas and because they were very well organized. And we have to also get, and this is what I see in Poland, that, that, that the rise of the right, right wing mobilized the left wing to be better. And I hope that also happens on the European scale now with the M25 and other, um, other movements that are really, you know, trying to, to provide an alternative. I 100% agree. 
So our job is to be louder with our ideas and make them visible and not go away, even if people laugh at us or um, just diss us, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think this, like, this is the hope we need that, like, it, as soon as we can clearly speak up for what we stand for. I think people will understand that we're not just against something, but we're also fighting for a progressive future. I, I really it takes a little bit of a tough skin at the beginning, uh, but I think we can do it. We're not we're not a movement of sprinters. We're a movement of marathon runners. We're here for the long term. So even if at the beginning it might be hard, I think in, in the long term it's going to work out. Yeah. Um, I've got a, well, it's a sort of a personal question I would like to ask about politics. Um, do you see, um, like in, in Malta at the moment, I'm seeing a convergence between the, uh, political standpoints of the, um, so-called, uh, Labour Party and the uh, so-called Nationalist Party. They, they're converging on a neoliberal agenda. And um, what used to be a socialist party and a workers' party now favors um, businesses over and capitalism over everything else because of um, job creation, so on and so forth. Is is this something that you've been witnessing going on in your own countries? Definitely in Austria. Um, I think the destruction of the Social Democratic Party is the big reason why our party, the Wandel, was founded. I think if they were still doing their job, we probably wouldn't have built our own party. That's first. Um, but I think that's not something that just happened today. When we look at the year 2000, Social Democratic Parties or Socialist Parties were part of government in 10 out of 15 countries that then made up the European Union. Um, and there were, there was a lot of like, um, social democratic and green coalitions also, for example, in Germany and Austria. Um, and they had all the chance to be the change they wanted to be. But I think by the time the party leadership, let's say Schröder in Germany, Blair in the UK, or also Gusenbauer in Austria, they had already conceded their democratic mandate. Uh, to corporate interest. So, and at the time, they were mainly concerned with deregulation, profit margins, global competition. It started with all this uh, cross-European austerity and also Hartz-Fee in Germany. So we know what followed from there. And I think what we see today is already a consequence of what happened at a much earlier stage. I think the situation in Poland is a little bit different in the sense that growing up, um, I, there was never a left-wing option. There were a lot of political parties, but they were, um, in a way, all subscribing to the same neoliberal version of economics um, that came out of the 90s. And actually, many of the politicians have not really updated their economic playbook. So even though we had uh, right-wing government for the peace government before we had uh, the liberal party uh, the platforma in government for 8 hour uh, for 8 years 
And we even had a, a so-called social democratic party, but it's actually the post-communist party that chose the, 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 the third way. So also neoliberal politics. And actually it was when the social democrats were in power that Poland uh, agreed to invade Iraq, then agreed to have secret CIA sites uh, on our territory and um, yeah, and lower taxes for the rich. So we, we just, I would say we had for like the, the last, uh, 25 years, um, almost 30 years, only neoliberal policies. And we never really had a truly social democratic party or left wing party. And this is why when Razen was, um, created in 2015 and came up with a program, which was on one hand, you know, very, green and progressive on things like women's rights and, and, and gay rights. It was also the first time that we had a true uh, economic left-wing party that, that was in favor of uh, of politics for the many and not the few. Um, so that's why I would say that in, in, in Poland, really, we are... We are just for the first time in our modern history creating what left wing really is. Everything else and, and people's mentalities really also, um, really change in this way, uh, that everybody thinks that people are responsible for their own successes, that it's an individual success. And, you know, if, um, if somebody fails, it's their personal failure. Um, there's not, much attention paid to to structural problems and how how basically economics and law is set up to favor the people that are already rich and powerful and to keep um, people who are less fortunate in check. And and Razem is really still to this day the only party that that says that that we should really change that. Even if you have different a different history, obviously between Austria and Poland. I think today we are at the same point that like exactly what you say, social democratic parties and conservative parties are really hard to distinguish. And both are an intrinsic part of the problem because they are all terrified with democracy. And this whole, like in, in 2007, 2008, during the financial crisis, when almost any party started to say, when they had to implement an unpopular measure, that there is no alternative, which Angela Merkel then elevated to a European level. Um, they killed off public debate, scientific debates. They said, like, okay, we need to do this. Like, what you said, like, social democratic parties started a war in Iraq, but then also they said, like, okay, banks need to be saved. People have to pay for it. And that's the end of the discussion. And I think once this discussion ends... And there is no more possible alternative to the ruling of a governing elite. This is when democracy is doomed to die. And this is probably the moment where in Austria, Wandel appeared. And it's with a totally different history, also a moment when in Poland, people realized that like, there's actually a lot of potential in democracy. And then Razum appeared. The, the thing that scares me the most is not the extreme right wing, is how, uh, how solidified the center has become and how, as you said, immune to new ideas and to real democracy and real debate uh, has become. It's the, 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 
there's very little difference right now in Poland between the ruling party and the party before on, on many matters. And actually the, the, the liberal coalition that is currently running against, um, the ruling party as the, um, it's called the European coalition. It has so many different parties in it. You know, the, the peasants party, the liberal party. So, but they actually don't have a program. They think that they don't need a program because the only thing that they want is to just change power. And, uh, and this is for me, this, you know, we talk about radical right, radical left, but this is the radical center. It's so, it's so scary. And actually, when we think about the European Parliament, the next uh, European Parliament, yes, maybe the number of the extreme right wing seats will double. But actually, um, when you think about, you know, EPP and this um, social and democratic uh, socialists and Democrats in the European Parliament, probably not much is going to ha- change. They're probably still going to be in the power-sharing coalition and more of the same policies are going to be implemented. And this is the thing that really scares me, that it is so hard to to move against this uh, these established parties that have so little to offer. One point where, where almost, or yeah, let's say all right-wing movements meet is... Um... The point about the whole point about migrants, I guess. I, I'm mm-hmm. just gonna say one thing because I'm not sure if it makes so much sense to talk about it. At least in in Polish context, yeah. uh, I can just say very quickly that yes, in 2015 it was a very big topic uh, because there was you know a, w- a wave of migrants and a lot of debate about it. But it's actually not used so much by the right wing at the moment to vilify refugees and migration is not an important topic in the Polish debate. It isn't. Uh, media says uh, the it still is because uh, Poland is refusing uh, to take uh, migrants from, from other countries right now. Because, I mean, it is an issue that uh, the refugees should be... Um, um, kind of spread um, fairly in a way yeah, the, uh, all the, over the Europe. Basically. The relocation program that you're talking about, it has failed on the European level for many reasons. One of them is that many governments did not want, and Poland was one of them, for their nationalistic racist reasons. But it has failed for other reasons too, as in... Um, there were not enough migrants that were actually applying to go to certain country like Poland. So when I say that it's not a topic of debate, I'm not saying that refugees are not in Poland or uh, that there are no refugees in Europe. I'm just saying this is not in Polish media and this is not what's used to, to win elections by either the right wing or left wing at the moment. It's has really disappeared from public debate. That's actually very interesting because, well, as far as I can say, it seems like in Austria it's still very present, isn't it, Dani? Yeah, it's one of the main topics. Um, and with any topic that we want to discuss, it's all about refugees. This mm. is like the main mobilization argument for our government. So it's not, it, it has, in the beginning, it was all about, um, we have to have quotas because too many migrants or asylum seekers come to Austria, then it changed to people who are already here, who got asylum, 
they're um, claiming social services and that's why Austrians can't have it. Now, basically, when the weather is bad, it's the fault of Afghans and Syrians in Austria. Okay. So every single day, um, the Austrian public debate is about refugees. It's a very horrible debate. And I also, like, I'm, I'm just so sick and tired of talking about it. But then I know, like, we have to fight this fight. And this is what I really like about the viewpoint of Yanis Varoufakis. Because in Austria and Germany, I know that a lot of progressive people are either tired about talking refugees or they're scared. Because if you say, like, yes, I want open borders, yes, of course, this is one of the biggest achievements of the of Europe, that we have an asylum system like the one we formerly have, um, then people, like, they get basically a lot of hatred on every channel. So when Yanis comes to Germany and he says, like, yes, of course we are for open borders, um, people who live by coincidence on one side of the Mediterranean have no right to decide by themselves what happens with the people on the other side of the Mediterranean. And I think it's his position from being an outsider to our public, to our ordinary public debate and being from Greece. So he can open the space to talk about refugees and migration in a completely different way. And I agree that, or I, I, I'm deeply convinced that the majority of people wants to have a fair and just asylum system. But the way, for example, we discuss it in Austria, people from the progressive side are not even, most of them are scared to speak up. And it's only a few very strong people who speak up. And I think we really need to change that by having their back at their work. So in Poland, it was very interesting because we had in 2015 this extreme anti-refugee narrative with horrible things that were said by uh, by extreme right-wing, but also by the members of the government. Um, and of course, that gave some fuel to to, to nationalists. Uh, but there were a lot of people that pushed back. Actually, it became kind of everybody's job, especially on social media, but also in real life, to demonstrate that they are pro-refugees. This was, you know, very, uh, like, just almost like a popular uh, uprising against these narratives. But but what is very interesting is that for many reasons, one of them being the government is hostile to refugees, we don't actually have many refugees. So this 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 political topic just basically run its course because it is not um it is not refugees that you see uh for example competing on the on the labor market it's more um economic migrants in case of Poland so we have a huge immigration from mm. from Ukraine yeah so it's just difficult to keep uh, a debate alive about uh, a topic uh, you know a group of people that are not there uh and and now a lot unfortunately unfortunately some of the attention uh, of the negative attention as well is focused on the on the very good hard working people from Ukraine um who are filling the the very much needed uh, labor gaps yeah i mean as far as so, i know uh, claiming that people from ukraine are like like refugees from a war zone the uh, people the ukrainian people in uh Poland 
it's it's not it's like saying that Polish people in Germany are uh, economical refugees from Poland, isn't it? Well, you know we have I mean? to be very precise when we say uh, the word refugee. I agree. The word refugee means that you are escaping persecution against you or your family, you know, uh, based on your, your, your status, like for example, your group membership or your political membership. There are people, for example, from Crimea, uh, Tatar, uh, minority that is persecuted, uh, currently in Crimea. And it is possible to get refugee status as a Ukrainian from, uh, as, as a, yeah, as a refugee, but, but, but you would have to prove that you have been personally or as a member of a group persecuted. The majority of uh, Ukrainians are, are econ uh, economic migrants, of course, and they're also victims of not only the corruption and war and, and the bad economic situation, uh, but also of very bad neoliberal policies because right now the government The previous government of Poroshenko was also reforming um, the economy by deregulating and basically being very close to the oligarchs. So unfortunately, some of the worst policies that we know from the European Union are being exported to Ukraine. And that's why we also have a lot of migration from there. Okay, did we? T well, I, I earlier asked about how your um, parties got involved in the European Spring Movement. Uh, would you both like to talk about that topic? Sure. Yes. Joanna, uh, you want to start? Um, maybe. <laughs> how did we, as Razem, get involved um, in the European Spring? Yeah. So mm -hmm. Razem was created in 2015. Um, during the presidential elections, where we could already see that after eight years of um, the liberal government of Platforma, we would most likely get the right-wing president and the right-wing government. And we were, you know, mm -hmm. really disappointed again that in the upcoming October 2015 elections, we would have to either choose between conservatives, which is uh, not acceptable for most, or the so-called lesser evil, so the liberals. So Razum was really born out of this, okay. how come we always have to vote for lesser evil? Can't we for once vote for the greater good? And then when we put out our program, mm -hmm. um, a lot of people joined, and it was just a, a very exciting time collecting signatures and then, presenting our lists and myself, I was a candidate in my hometown for member of parliament. And then um, about a year later, we heard that Yanis Varoufakis is uh, creating Team 25. And then I think we came, as I mentioned earlier, to the Volksbühne more as spectators to see what's going to come out of this movement because when it comes to the program and ideas, It was really, you know, just like Razen was what most many people in Poland were waiting for. Um, the M25 was what, you know, we were waiting for on the European Union level. Uh, but, but then I think for, for a very little time, Razen and DM were, you know, going separate paths and these paths connected where there was this idea of, okay, so what are we going to do about the upcoming European Parliament elections? 
And then we were there from the very beginning when this idea of European Spring was created. Um, Razem had representatives in the coordinating collective. And what was very important when we were writing the program of the European Spring, anybody could have contributed to that program. So both members of GM25 were invited to participate in writing of the program and all our Razem members were invited to to contribute. And this is what happened. There were you know many, many Razem members that were involved in writing of this European Spring program. This was really the moment where these these all different groups of people and ideas became one. And I think by now it is very clear for you know for a person from Razem to talk somebody from Denmark or Portugal or from different DSCs around the world that we are really one big movement, even if our paths were different at the beginning. So when Wandel was found in 2012, one of our main, the main drivers of our motivation was the bad handling of the financial crisis, which like for five years had not been solved in any proper way. Um, global inequality and um, corporate power that had spiraled out of control. So no other party was talking about the root cause or trying to solve that. And so we started to say, like, okay, there must be a democratic answer to the global capitalism we face. But, of course, um, we were very aware from the beginning that this is not a national party we need. We need, like, a international network that we need to attach ourselves to. At the last European elections, we were um, running in a big alliance um, in Austria, um, which was attached to the European left. And we're still partners of the European left, which is the network of GUE-NGL in the European Parliament. Um, And... So since then, we were always working internationally, trying to meet people from other parties across Europe. And so we started to be in contact with Demokratie in Bewegung, which is one of the alliance partners from Germany. And we were thinking with them of like what projects we could work on together, because Austria and Germany, we face very similar issues, but also public discourse and political topics are very similar. Um, and so we just started to... Um, get closer to Demokratien Bewegung when last year they asked us whether someone from Wandel, from Austria, could run on their list for the European elections. They said plainly, like, we really want to do a transnational list. We don't want Germans only. Um, The German list doesn't belong to the Germans. It's a European list. Does someone from your party want to run as a candidate? And so that's how we got there. And I have to say, when when someone says like, "Oh, we have a transnational movement," and does someone want to be on the list? Then obviously, um, there's doubts to have about like what that means, right? And okay, so what does it mean you want to have a transnational list, um, and so forth? But I have to say that like from the beginning of the project, I was like surprised all the time of how truly transnational this project is. So when we now work in our election campaign, it usually is that people meet across countries. It's not only that we work on the German campaign, 
but we also are in close contact with France, with um, Denmark, with Greece. And so people don't care where you're from or where you live. It's all about like getting this to work together. And I think this is actually what our party was looking for from its foundation, having this international network that can deal with the root causes of today's problem. Okay. Um, so I think one of the priority questions is, um, and you can take it in turns as well to reply to this, is how do people in, in your um, own countries react to the idea of the Green New Deal and the basic dividend? Um, are these ideas that are, um, you know, picking up traction? Yeah, I think when you talk about the Green New Deal, um, you reach a lot of people across Europe. So I have the same experience in Austria as in Germany, but also I've heard from other parts of Europe. And I think the reason is simple. Uh, when you look at the statistics, 90% of all Europeans acknowledge that we live in a climate crisis and we need to do something about it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not that like we came up with rocket science or a whole new idea. It's just the Green New Deal gives a frame and a big story to what we all see and want, like a political solution to the climate crisis. People have been left with individual uh, feelings of guilt and responsibility for long enough. And I think it's time that we stop blaming ourselves individually all the time it's 100 corporations that produce 70% of all greenhouse gas emissions over the last 30 years. And we need to build a world where we're independent of these companies. And that's what the Green New Deal is about. How about you, Joanna? What's, what's your, your view on people's uh, take we, up of these new ideas? So when we think about um, our campaigns, we always like to start with the things that people tell us that their concerns are basically listen to what change, what, what bothers them or what change they would like to see. So I think in Poland, the, the two top issues are around health and, and working conditions. Um, and I think on the working conditions, it's very important because the EU um, promised the freedom of movement and many people benefited from that, of course, but it's only like a promise half fulfilled because uh, the conditions between the different countries are very different. And Poland is plagued by temporary work contracts and employers who try to make an extra buck by avoiding the law or, you know, uh, they're not paying the fair wages. And this pushes a lot of people to work abroad. But then when they go abroad, they're confronted with the fact that their migrant workers are not always treated the same as local workers. So I think we try to uh, make one of our main points, these the worker compacts and the European standards for working conditions. For example, like um, equal pay for equal work, but also 35-hour work week, uh, the right to unions, was also very important, an institution like the European Labour Inspection, which would actually punish employers for breaking mm -hmm. the law. So then the basic dividend is, um, it's also, it's a great idea, but I think these basic mm -hmm. necessities would have to be fixed first. 
for people to really believe that it could happen. Now, similarly with the Green New Deal, I think the way we're trying to approach it is from something that people are very concerned about, which is health. You know, people, uh, as I said, people hard work very long hours, uh, but also we have extremely bad air quality in Poland. We have smog in yeah. big cities and small. So for for Polish people, the issue of green transformation has become very real and very yeah. in their daily experience. So this is why actually something like the Green New Deal does resonate very well with voters because this um, concern about environment and health has really exploded due to pollution that you can see basically when you look across uh, outside your window. So I think people are just very worried, um, you know, especially concerned for their children, but also for elderly people. And we also had like massive fight over nature in Poland because our current government, you know, took this ancient forest and started cutting out trees. So for me, the Green New Deal is about um, investing, of course, in green transformation, but also protecting what we already have, um, our water and air and, and biodiversity. And I think that resonates very well, of course. The Polish Pol- people are also surfing the green wave. I think a lot has changed culturally f- across Europe. And, and the Fridays for Future um, are also happening in Poland. And, and many, many political parties are now taking this issue more seriously. But nobody has this bold vision as we do. So that's what... Um separates you from the crowd in other words that you um are um not just paying lip service to um the idea of um the green new deal but you actually consider it to be one of your main um platforms to be to be honest no i think our campaign is a little bit different in poland it's very much rooted in the program but as i said health is one of the main concerns So the way, for example, today we are tackling the problem of the big pharma, the pharmaceutical corporations, which are trying to influence um, the pricing of, of, of drugs in Poland. And we have, uh, you know, the American ambassador who on behalf of Trump administration tried to basically lobby the Polish government to subsidize American drugs. So mm-hmm. there are certain issues that are not exactly the same as on the European level because our program is so rich in different policy solutions that really it's again it's a it's an exercise in trying to figure out what resonates the most and and I think for certain people the green new deal is um the ones that are very knowledgeable about the different options out there the green new deal is uh, very attractive But for others, you have to t- talk about things like working conditions or the health standards. Basically, the European Union in Poland is still the the, the place where the good standards come from. No, no but I agree um, with you, Anna, that like the the emphasis on what you talk most about in different countries might be different. Um, also in Austria, um, I think we do have different political topics than Germany, for example, but um, they're all interconnected. And as Joanna said, like when you talk about big pharma or big corporations, then this all feeds into our main message of DiEM25. The main message is 
either Europe will be democratized or it will disintegrate. And yeah. all these issues of inequality, may they be financial, social or health inequalities like in Poland, they all come from the same root cause, which is that the power of decision making and profit making on, in the world is bundled in the hands of a few very rich and wealthy individuals and their yeah. armies of lobbyists. So, um, mm -hmm. and the majority, the vast majority of the people have no say in how they want to organize their societies. And for a long time, everyone thought like, okay, this is happening all across the globe, but in Europe, now we know this is also happening in Europe and we need to do something about it. Whether, um, yes. you talk, like you don't have to talk about the same symptoms in each country, but I think we all have the same basic message. Excellent. So um, I have to ask you a question about the um, powerful fraternity in Austria. <laughs> I'm not going to ask this. I already said to Flo, I'm not going to talk about this because then I will just talk about right-wing people in Austria all the time and I don't want to give them any more room. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you're refusing to give them any more airtime. <laughs> so um, on the whole, in... in um, both your countries. Um, how how do you feel the situation is in terms of uh, freedom of speech and freedom of expression? Do you feel that there is um, increasing oppression of uh, left-wing voices and ideas or um, have you not come to that state? Mm, I think in Austria, people have for a long time been very lazy about raising their voices politically. And now when they have the feeling that they should raise their voice because they see things that they don't agree with, then people don't know anymore how to do it. I think this is the main issue in Austria, that the borders of free speech already start in the minds of the people. But then, of course, um, there's a lot of outcry about the current politics and the way they manipulate press. Also, um, message control of the Austrian government is like a regular topic in our newspapers. Um, as I mentioned before, we also do have people from government attacking journalists of our evening news. Um, when they criticize them openly in interviews on TV. So I think we have a multidimensional problem of, yes, right-wing governments and conservative governments today feed off fear and anger, and they also try to restrict the discourse on a factual level. So what they want to talk about is emotions. They don't want to talk about arguments. I don't think that like there is no chance of opposing this development, but I also think that in Austria, only a few people have the guts and the experience and the passion to do so. I see. But obviously we have yeah, I think freedom of press on a completely different scale than a lot of other countries globally. So yeah. it, I don't want to be too dramatic about it. So at the moment, it's not really manifesting itself as a problem. I think it's starting to feel like a problem for most people. And I think everyone is really attentive now to what's happening next. 
but it, there's not, it's not a lost cause at the moment. I think we just need to get used to speaking up um, about our political opinions and being brave enough to say no when you think someone crossed the red line. I think that's something Austrians also need to learn today. When it comes to freedom of expression uh, in Poland, I think a big challenge is the the media landscape and um, and the media landscape in Poland is not a very good environment for new voices. First of all, we have the public media, which became state media, completely controlled by the government. And um, basically they're a propaganda machine. It's, I think, fair to say that because they just say most ridiculous stuff on air all the time. But actually, interesting enough, um, Razen does get invited to public media um, from time to time to, to, to present our ideas. Um, and then on the other hand, we have private TV channels, which even though they are independent from the government, uh, then they very much, um, you know, spin very different narratives. They're controlled by the corporations and um, these liberal media are not interested in new left-wing voices either, you know. And then what you're left with is social media and trying to reach people independently. But as we can see in the last couple of years, on one hand, social media, um, you know, we, we have the problem of, of the filter bubbles that is sometimes difficult to reach outside of the people that you already know. On the other hand, it is the algorithms are are controlled by the corporations. So I think that, for example, it is harder now than a couple of years ago for a new party to reach new people on social media. And of course, we have you know very brave politicians and activists and artists that are trying every day to to raise their voice. And we have some great alternative media that cultivate these new voices. Um, but occasionally they do get shut down by the government. Uh, as in, for example, we had a couple incidents recently where people's artistic freedom was limited, like um, a piece of artwork was taken out of gallery or somebody was actually accused of blasphemy for putting an image of um, Hail Mary with like a rainbow LGBT symbol around her head. So, so I think these incidents are serious, even if they're isolated, because they have a chilling effect. They, they are sending a signal to other people that maybe they shouldn't overstep the line. But I think Polish people are quite brave. And as I said, they are very attached to their freedom. So I think they will persist and say and do things that are uncomfortable to to the media controlled by the government and corporations. I have a lot of faith. Okay, that's... Um, I'm glad uh, you have a positive outlook. On that note, I, I think I'll uh, conclude our, our discussion for the day. Um, I'd like to wish you both the best of luck in the upcoming elections. And um, I'm sure we'll be talking again in the future. And um, if either of you have any last points which you would like to add, uh, now is the time to do it. Mm, thank you, Jamie and Flo, for having us. I 
think these formats are really important because what I truly believe is that if we want to have a pan-European movement where people feel comfortable enough to join for a big political cause, and what we are demanding is basically the democratization of Europe, which is the most radical change to the Europe we have today. Um, if we want to build this, we need to be open about our own stories and we need to jump over the hurdles of being afraid to be openly speaking about our history, our personal life, all these kind of things. Um, and there's not many formats where we can do this. And that's why I really appreciate that like you gave us the space to talk about our countries, but also the similarities in our stories. Thank you very much. Thank you. I also would like to, Joanna? yes, I would also like to add on this note, um, that exactly media and social media is so often about, you know, just getting that one minute clip right or just a couple words. And these conversations can be so refreshing where you actually get to talk about personal stories and programs and our dreams and visions for the future. And it, I think, yeah, like Danny said, it's, 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 it's very needed to cultivate, um, these formats. Um, ultimately for me, this whole campaign is about bringing new people to the political process and hearing more people than we usually hear. So, uh, so thank you so much for having us and, and good luck with, uh, with your podcast in the future. Thank you for attending to our interview. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. And it was a privilege to speak to both of you. And um, as I said earlier, let's uh, do this again sometime soon. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. And have a good yeah. evening.